Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Hoop Du Jour with me, Peter Vesey, presented by the National Basketball Retired Players Association. Welcome back to Hoop Du Jour. I, I hope people are wondering what the heck happened to me and, and to this uh, podcast. But you haven't seen me since the All-Star game in Cleveland. And uh, it's taken me that long to thaw out. Um, I, I heard somebody, Rick, when I was uh, going to introduce Rick Barry in a second. But I heard somebody in, in uh, Cleveland say, a woman say to her, her husband that, you know, I married you for, for better or for worse, but I never said I'd marry you for a weekend in February in Cleveland. We're done. <laughs> hey, listen, that's not as bad as sometimes Chicago, the, the, the Toronto situation. Oh, my God. I mean, you know you're in trouble when you go to a city in the wintertime and they have underground or overground ways yeah. to walk. Right, if that right. happens, you don't want to live there because that means the weather sucks. Or right. or in Houston in the summertime when you go underground and they don't want you to have to get exposed to the elements because they're so bad. Right. So so the uh, the, uh, the the thing that stood out most to me that whole weekend was seeing Bob Pettit on a cane outside on the street trying to hit in the slush I mean, slippery as anything, trying to hail a cab. And I'm saying yeah. an Uber, an Uber. I'm saying this is ridiculous. How how can the league how can the league let that happen? But that's still on my mind. But Rick, let me let me shoot to let me cut to the chase here and say the last time that um I don't have to introduce you, it's Rick Barry. We we know we know how great a player he was and blah, blah, blah. But the last time that we spoke for any length was your podcast about a year or so ago and the last thing you said to me when when we were about to sign off was you were going to bring the tape home to your wife so she could listen to somebody who was crazier than you yeah well you do uh yeah you were kind of crazy there's no question about it. and uh you were you were a real shit disturber when it came to your writing and stuff and you used to piss a lot of people off i did that but i wasn't trying to do it i think you were that's the no difference. i was not oh you were naturally you yeah okay yeah that's what i'm saying okay so it was just just rolled off your lips <laughs> or actually rolled off your fingers on the back of the days of the typewriter right right hey listen i i, I had uh, a lot of compliments from you and your family over the years for stuff i wrote about you i don't think I don't think you ever, ever complained about something I wrote about you. Well, first of all, it doesn't do any good because <laughs> you always have the last, the, the writer always has the last word. I mean, that's oh, the whole man. thing about it is people have the ability. Like, I'm still waiting for Bill Simmons to apologize to me for calling me a dick in his book. I mean, it doesn't even know me. I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, how do you call yourself a freaking professional doing it? I mean, so he, I have absolutely no respect for him whatsoever as a journalist. As, and, and neither, and neither do I. And let me, let me stop you. So I, I didn't know till last night that uh, he quoted, he quoted some guy I never heard of saying negative things about you in his book. And I'm going like, 
He had a guy, yeah. there's a guy named Ken Macker that they used. Yeah, who is that guy? Ken Macker was a friend of Franklin Muley's, the owner of the team, had really nothing to do with anything. And what he said about me was so, so wrong and so unfair and ridiculous. And yet Bill Simmons made it like he was God talking about something and that he believed everything that he said. And, and I, I've had to live with that garbage all the time. And then, you know, some of the people I know, you know, the Whopper. The Whopper is a comedian. He's so funny. I mean, he's secret right. character, he, he, right? He, so, he, he, yeah, exactly. You he know, the Whopper, so the Whopper said, oh, yeah, half the guys in the league don't like Rick. The other half hate him. I mean, and so he said that to be obviously funny. I mean, we knew each other. We were friends. And Billy, uh, who was it? Uh, Mike Dunleavy said, was the Rockies. He's, oh, yeah, if you put Rick in the UN, he'd start World War III. I mean, these were all said in jest to be funny. These are guys that are friends of mine. And yeah. people took like, like this was so yeah. serious. And that's the kind of person I was. And, and I just saw something actually the other day, Pete, that was really, really nice. And so the Jamal Wilkes had said something in an interview I had never seen before, never even knew about it. But somebody had told him, warned him about me, warned him about having to go to play with me when he got drafted by the Warriors. And he went and told everything and how it was great and how we're friends to this day and everything. And so he put a lot of that to shame. I have a reputation that I think is not deserved. Was I a difficult person? I was not necessarily difficult. I was demanding. Um, and I see some of the stuff that happened with Michael Jordan. I look like a rank amateur compared to Michael Jordan, the way he got on his teammates. I mean, I just, I just wanted you playing for me. You better be playing your best in your hardest. Otherwise, you're going to hear something from me because what the hell are you on my team for if you're not going to play and play your best and play your right. hardest? And and Wilkes won Rookie of the Year uh, with the Warriors that in 1975, yeah. and you won the championship and you swept the bullets in four games. So yeah, that that went that went pretty smoothly. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was a heck of a player. I mean, we played really well together and. Uh, uh, yeah, I was happy to see that article because it was actually a complimentary one and, you know, showed people that I'm not the ogre that everybody portrays me to be. Uh, but here's the bottom line is that I know who I am as a person. The people who really know me know me as a person and know who I am. And all I can say to people is, is that I think you'd be very lucky if you had a friend like me. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surprise people more who, who think who think those things about you. Um, I, I know for a fact, uh, you know, how what you've done for some of your teammates from those Warriors. Uh, Charlie Johnson, for one, when uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but when he was dying of cancer, I know that I know that you went went to visit him a lot. And, and, and I'm sure you you financed him, you know, to some degree. And, and, and that wasn't a, an exception to the rule. You had several, four guys on that team that died young. Yeah, it was really very tragic. Uh, Derek Dickey, you know, Phil Smith, CJ, uh, and, and it was tough. Nate, who wasn't on that team, but was my first, you know, great big man that I ever played with. Uh, we were really close friends and turned out I was the last person to see him before he died. I went to the hospital. He was in the hospital, uh, talked to Marcy, his wife, and she's, you know, I had tried to go went to see him again when I was going to San Francisco. And she said, well, it's, it's a tough time now, Rick. I'll let you know. So I called her. I said, look, I'm coming to the city. Can I see him? And he said, yeah, it'd be great. And so somebody had given me a really neat thing to that I wanted to get signed by Nate. It was for both of us with Hall of Fame induction stuff. And also I had brought it with me and I had it in my bag, which I put down and obviously, you know, talking to him, saying things. And before I could get it out and hopefully things are going well to get him to sign it, he says, yeah, I just want you to know that, the you know, the doctor told me they're pulling the plug on me. And I'm like, what? I mean, it was, I, it just was crushing to hear that. I mean, it was such a sad thing. And Marcy told me afterwards that I was the last person that saw him other than her. And, and he passed away. And CJ, the same, I saw CJ 
And I, it was pain, so painful. I mean, I have a difficult time doing that because I'm, I'm, I am an emotional person, um, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But I, I, in this case, I mean, it just killed me to not break down in front of them. And I, I, I said something that I still remember because I, I was able to get a laugh at him. I said, CJ, I know you're a fighter. You're not going to give up. And it was just, it was so sad to see the way he was. I said, but you got to stop fighting. I said, you know, th this is crazy. You're suffering. Uh, he had no chance. I mean, it was just a matter of when he was going to go. And I said to him, look, I got it on good authority that there's a tea time waiting for you up there. And he left to play golf. We had played golf together in a tournament. He actually got a hole in one and he started laughing. And so that kind of made me feel good to bring a little laugh to him and all. And then two days later, he was dead. Nate, two days later, he was dead. I mean, I've had so many people I've been around that were friends or, or teammates or contemporaries of mine that I saw them within a few days of them passing away. I mean, Moses Malone and I were working out at the hotel at the Hall of Fame on, on Friday and Sunday morning, he was dead. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I said, maybe you guys, just, you know, don't, you don't want to hang around with me if you're older, I guess. I don't know if I'm a jinx or something, but yeah. Yeah. It's sad to see that. Well, let me, it really is. Especially the young guys like Phil, you know, Phil with a young fan. Oh boy. Was he a great guy? And Derek. Was he a hell of a player too. He was. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Well, the thing is when we won, two of the things that happened that were, I think that were two of the critical elements for our success. It's not often that a team has two rookies be contributing factors to your team's success in winning a championship. And we had Jamal, who of course was Keith at the time, and he was rookie of the year. And then Phil really came along tremendously and did a great job for us. And so, you know, both of those guys were great. And Derek Dickey, I mean, unbelievable. I think he set a record for field goal percentage and all. He just played so well in the playoffs. And you know what I'm happy about, Pete? And I don't even know if you know this, but I am really excited. I spent a lot of time yesterday going over talking about our championship season with the, the director. Now, we're going to have a documentary finally, finally coming out about our championship team. All these documentaries about all these teams. This is the greatest upset in the history of major sports. And I defy anybody to find something more dramatic than what we did. And certainly without question in the finals of the NBA. And nothing's ever been written about it, done, no documentary. But yet with all these teams and stuff that had been done over the years, it, it was criminal. I was close to having something done with some really high-powered people. But Charles Dudley, the hopper, was in the process of doing something. He, too, wanted to get it done. He was very successful, became an executive at Costco. And I didn't want to step on his toes and all. And they wanted to talk to me. I said, OK, says, I'm going to do this. I said, but I'll only do it from one thing. Because I wanted to do it, but my one reason for doing it is I wanted to make sure that my teammates got the recognition they never got for helping us accomplish that amazing, amazing championship season because they never got credit. I was MVP and, and all the other stuff, but the team was so overlooked. No cover of Sports Illustrated, no invitation to the White House, basically an overlooked accomplishment. So this is going to be great, and I'm hoping that Joe Lacob and Peter Gruber, the owners of the Warriors, will make it into a big deal when we uh, have it and have a premiere and maybe even show the film and get the fans to come to, uh, to to the new arena in San Francisco when it's done next year. That would be really great. But I'm excited about that. But yeah. they assured me that they would make sure that it was not going to be something, you know, focusing all on me. I said, this is not about me. I said, we won as a team and we wouldn't have won without my teammates. In fact, I tell people all the time, the most important person on our championship team was not me. It was Clifford Ray. 
Clifford Ray was the pub of our team. He's the one that kept guys together. I mean, he called a meeting with all the players without me that I found about after the season was over. Yeah, and, I heard you know, Clifford and I, Clifford and I are like, you know, we're like brothers and uh, God is ready. He had, you know, some cancer early on and doing stuff. And if something happened, I, I would have, I would have been, you know, the one to take care of his son. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I want to bring up Clifford a little later, but let's just stay on, on your 75 yeah. team. So anyway, I'm happy that that's going to take place. And so next year it should hopefully come out, but I have, Fortunately, because I talked to Bill King, who was like one of the great announcers of all time, and God bless you know Vince Scully's family and stuff. I mean, Vince Scully was just amazing in baseball. But Bill King did all three sports. I mean, I don't think there's ever been another announcer that was as good as he was because he was unbelievable in basketball, and he was great for the Raiders in football, and he did baseball. I mean, he was amazing. And so, you know, Bill was awesome, and Bill kept this – yearly diary of the season every game statistics writing down stuff and i had asked him i said hey bill listen sometime whatever i mean you're a little older than i am hopefully we're both going to live a long life i said but when time comes and you do go can i get your diary of the 75 76 season you know 74 75 season and he said yeah sure and so when he passed away i called somebody who was i don't know a relative or something they didn't give me the original but I do have a copy of the whole thing. Wow. And that's what I was going over with, with the, uh, with the producer of the show, director of the show, the producer of the show. And, uh, and so it was really cool to go through that again. And it's like, it's like having the whole, my whole season and all my memories to look back on stuff that I didn't all remember at all. And then I was reading through it and it was, it was it's pretty cool to have it. In fact, it's Rick, right there. It's right Rick, there, right there. Nice. Rick, make sure they interview me for that. You know, I, there for you years, go. for years, I said that, uh, picking the Warriors in 75 was the last time I had it right for about 25 years. I, I saw you on the show with the, with Freddie. You know, uh, we, they did a deal with uh, with uh, that you did on one of the NBA shows with Rick Kamla. I saw Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad Dog. Mad <laughs> no, dog, no. Yeah. Yeah. Carter. Fred Carter. Fred Carter. Fred, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so that was the last time I got it right for a long time, and so I did cover it. I still I I still have some of my writings from that time. Yeah, well, I'll t I'll, the guys are yeah, the, yeah, that's good. I mean, you didn't cover you covered the ABA too. They should do an interview. The guys are doing it. George Carl has got it done. I just been doing a lot of interviews for that too. They're doing a big documentary about the ABA and all, so they should probably reach out to you. I'll, t I'll yeah, suggest they, that they did with the ABA. But oh, Rick, they did. I, oh, good. Yeah, good. but I I, to get I, uh, I kind of keep that stuff I, for my book if I do it. Um, but like two things, two things stand out to me on your 75 team. Well, many things, but two of these things were prominent. First of all, the fact that Al Adels and Joe Roberts were, were black coach, black assistant. The Bullets had, had Casey Jones and Bernie Bickerstaff. And not one person on TV or in the press mentioned the fact that the, all four coaches were black. It, and then now... It's a bigger thing today when they start talking about it. But here, you guys in 75, both teams. So that that's one thing. The other thing was when Mike Reardon came after you in game four, uh, that was planned. And if you want to talk about it, uh, what you know about it, uh, he came after you and Al Adels came after him and got thrown out of game four. The only time a, a head coach got thrown out of a deciding game in the finals. Yeah, that's and, Richard Powers for you. Well, explain explain what happened there. Well, basically, uh, 
they they were so overconfident that they were going to beat us. It was supposed to be the biggest mismatch in the history of the NBA Finals. And this is why I talk about what we did was incredible. Right. So not only, yeah, they got the sweet part right, but they got the wrong team, okay? <laughs> and so I don't know why they're all that overconfident. In fact, actually going over yesterday, I happened to see one of the games and they said, well, you did that and you only had eight points and all that. Mike Reardon can hold me. I said, yeah, but I had a bad knee. And Bill in his notes had it. Rick had a bad knee. And I mean, I shouldn't even have played that game. And so, and then another game we lost like by one point and some crazy thing that happened. Uh, they called a foul that was ridiculous after the clock had certainly run out and gave two free throws to Phil Chenier to make two free throws to beat us by one point. No, so, not I mean, in the finals. Not in the finals. No, not in the finals. This yeah. is the regular season. So this okay. gave them reason to think oh. that, you know, hey, well, there's no way they can beat him. And they said, you know, Reardon can, you know, could guard Barry. I said, what are they joking? I said, you know, I'm mean, not taking anything from Mike Reardon, you know, nice player, nice guy and all. But I mean, I was fat. I was I was taller, faster, and quicker than he was. How the hell is he going to guard me? Right. I mean, so <laughs> so we now we go and and they were so confident and overconfident that they were willing because of a conflict with the arena. They had the circus in town at our place that they were willing to play the first game at home and come and play two at our place and then go back to their game their place for two. And so it might have been two or three. I even forget how many. But anyway, it didn't matter because only won four. So they lose the first game at home, right? We come from behind and beat them, and then we beat them twice out there. So now I know those guys know they're in big trouble because nobody's ever come back from a three nothing deficit in an NBA Finals, right? At that yeah, time. even then, yeah, yeah, no, back in then, yeah, never, never had been done. So jump ball, Mike Reardon throws an elbow at me and, you know, whacks me with an elbow on the jump ball. I said, oh, okay, so that's the way it's going to be. You guys are in such freaking trouble. You think I'm stupid <laughs> enough to get in a fight with you so that you can get thrown out and I can get thrown out? That's not going to happen. And so if you watch it, when he did come again, then came over my my shoulder and back and stuff, and then Al came out on the court to try to make sure I didn't get thrown out. You notice I, I stayed away from everything. The only way I got in the way, I got in front of Al to try to keep him away from Richie Powers. But I was not going to get drawn and sucked into that. So I knew – that they were desperate at the jump ball when he threw the elbow at me. Right. And then and he didn't get thrown out. He didn't get thrown out and Al did. And Mike, as I recall, I think we've talked about it at some point over the years that, that he, he said, uh, he, he said that the, the plan, the plan was to, to, uh, for him to go after you. And then Wes Unsell was supposed to protect him from Al Adels. From Adels. And so, and then, no, that didn't happen. Unsell never got to him. <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah, well, Uns yeah, Unsell was, yeah, but Unsell was, was there to try to protect him because Al was there pushing. I got to watch the video of it, uh, but it was crazy. He should, should never have thrown Al out of the game. It was, it was nuts. But Joe Roberts did a great job of taking charge of things for us. And, uh, and we came away victorious, but that was, that, that, that was great. I mean, it, it was such a rewarding accomplishment by our team because we really epitomize what a team is all about. I mean, I was the only named player on the team. We had a couple of veteran guys that were at the end of their career who were willing to accept their roles, which, you know, and Jeff Mullins and Bill Bridges. And we got Bill mainly for the Chicago series and had two rookies playing. And we had the double-headed center with, you know, Clifford Ray and George Johnson. And then we had Derek Dickey and Charles Johnson and Butch Beard and Charles Dudley. I mean, all these guys played a role in us winning because, you know, we wouldn't even have gotten to the final speed if it weren't been, hadn't been for my teammates. I mean, game seven against Chicago in the Western Conference Finals, I was thinking up the freaking building. I mean, seriously. And to Al's credit, he took me out midway through the third quarter. I think I was like two for 14. And we were down by double digits. I mean, what coach is going to take his leading scorer out of the game in the middle of the third quarter in a game seven of a, West, of a conference final? 
And not only did he keep me out for the entire rest of the third quarter, he kept me out into the fourth quarter. I figured, you know, I'm going back in at the start of the fourth. And he left the guys in. And the guys, to their credit, did a great job. They were able to actually cut into the lead. I think when I went back in, we were down by seven. And fortunately, fortunately, I, you know, I was able to play the way I should have been playing the whole game and played really well the rest of the way. I think I went five from eight from the field and made some assists and stuff. And George Johnson was unbelievable blocking shots and, and, and keeping them away from getting easy baskets. And we came away victorious. And as I say, that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for my freaking teammates because, you know, I sucked. <laughs> did, you, did you talk to adults that night about you being taken out or no. at some point after that? No, but but in the in the past, now when I've been at some functions to do stuff, I said, Al Outer's greatest coaching move in his career was <laughs> taking me out of the game in game seven against Chicago at home in the Western <laughs> Conference Finals in 1975. That's his greatest coaching That's move. That's funny. Well, hopefully, prayerfully, uh, Al Alice is going to be able to be, you know, he'll be in good shape to talk about, you know. Well, they, they, they've interviewed, they've already interviewed and got stuff done with that. He's having, right. different, you know, some some issues health-wise and stuff, but I right. think they already got all of that done. And um, so that that was good. And everything's moving along in a positive vein. And I'm going to be interested to see what they come up with and, and, and how they present it. And I, right. I emphasize again to, to Ethan, the guy yesterday, I said, Ethan, please. I said, you guys have to make sure you have to promise me that this is going to be about our team and what the guys did and right. how we did it as a team. Right. Well, let me, let me uh, swerve over to Clifford Ray. So I, I talked about, how you were there for your teammates when they were ill or, or in need. And then I don't know how many years ago, not that many years ago, you were in a bad accident in, in Colorado. Was it a biking accident? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I fractured my pelvis in the six yes. places and I was in a wheelchair for three months. And, and I don't think anybody really knew about that, talked about that, but I know Clifford Ray went and spent a lot of time. He spent, yeah, he flew out to come out there and to be there to help, you know, be there and help out with my wife. And I can say we're, we're like brothers. I mean, and I was actually mad at him sometime because he had some stuff time going on and I never knew about it. I said, why the hell didn't you call me? You know, I mean, I mean, that's what friends are for. You know, you call friends, you know, not just the good times. You call them in the bad times. That's what friends are supposed to be about. So, right. but he's, he's been through some difficult times. I mean, probably one of the, you talk about being treated poorly. I mean, oh. my God. The yeah, go right ahead, Rick. Go right I'm, ahead. I'm serious. This is this. I yeah. mean, I'm so pissed off. I know where you're going. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable. He's been one of the lowest paid coaches on any staff that he's worked on. Yet he's been he is without question, I think, the best big man's coach. If you look at his his history of what he's done and the players he's had and what he's gotten out of them, the best big man's coach the NBA has seen. And the players loved him. He was unbelievable. I mean, first of all, the Celtics don't win their championships without Clifford Ray. Okay, they don't win. Who Why? did he help? Who did he well, help he took, recruit? He, he, no, no, yeah, he took Al Jefferson and made him into so much better a player that yeah. Minnesota was willing to take him to get Kevin Garnett. And without that, they're not winning, right? Okay, so then he goes and he takes Big Baby and he makes Big Baby into a better player. And he helps him a lot. He got Kendrick Perkins helped him. He's the one that you know suggested to bring in you know PGA Brown to bring him in during the that the was run. that was the guy they brought him in. Yeah, they, yeah, they, that, that's Clifford telling them to do that. Yeah, so they don't win those championships, and this is like mind numbing to me. How can a head coach making five million dollars a year, Doc Rivers, have have a guy on his staff 
who was so instrumental in the team's success, first of all, being paid the lowest, I think the lowest salary on the team, having to sit behind the bench, not even on the bench, behind the bench. And you win two championships and he doesn't get a full playoff share? How do you let that happen? Now, that's just the start of how bad this is, okay? And I haven't seen Doc Rivers before, and I've lost all respect for him for the way he treated Clifford Ray. Then, okay, would you, I mean, I would have gone into Danny Ainge because it used to be that the players voted whether the coaches got something or not back when I first played. But now it's the team's responsibility. How do you, as the head coach making $5 million, not go in to fight for every one of your staff members to get a full playoff share? I would have gone to Danny Ainge and said, hey, Danny, here's the deal. You either pay Clifford Ray a full playoff share or I'm going to the media and tell him what a cheap SOB you are. Okay, didn't do that. Two times it happened to him, twice. And then after that other one, when they lost out, and you know, they got to the finals, didn't win it. But when they got the next season, he tells Clifford Ray in September that he's not rehiring him. September. How in the hell is he supposed to get a job? But Rick, go further. He was he he had a bad foot that he almost had to. Well, have he his got foot that afterwards, amputated. and did he got he got Mercer and caught in the locker room had a right. have foot you know, toes amputated, which right. caused him all kinds of issue. Almost killed him last year. It came back into that stuff. He almost right. died last year because of it. And they know. did nothing for him. I mean, nothing. He was treated so poorly by the Boston Celtic organization. It's pathetic. And by Doc Rivers. And so they should be ashamed. You, of thought, this. I, you thought his name was Isaiah Thomas. They treated him so bad. It's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. No, I knew about that. I wrote a column about that, Rick, just so you know, at the time. And uh, I, like you, I, I lost all respect for Doc Rivers from that and from other things that that he's done that i know about and uh it's an amazing thing that he just keeps getting overpaid and overpaid uh in, into now um let's 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 switch gears you know I, I i like to tell people that uh you know our relationship is not something that just happened you know once you started playing in the nba and i i don't know if you remember it but i was down at the university of miami when you were there playing as a freshman under Bruce Hale, a coach. And, uh, you know, you were with Mike McCoy and, and Chuck Hobbler and uh, Kessler. What was Kessler's first name? Uh, Chuck Holliber. No, Holliber, Chuck Holliber. Chuck Kessler. Yeah, and Larry Kessler. From Larry New Kessler. So those guys were from New York, those right. last two guys. And I knew them. I played outside ball with them. Right. So I used to, like, work out with your team without being in the university. I was just staying there. And Bruce Hale found out about it one day. He's like, who are you and what are you doing here? And he found out I wasn't in school and he like kicked me out of the gym. And as you remember that gym, they had courts outside. And I just said, fine. So I went outside and played outside. <laughs> no, we didn't have a gym. Well, whatever it was, it, it, was, was, it, was, the, it was the armory. It was oh, the, the, armory. the military armory that we oh. had a court down there that we practiced in. We didn't. Okay. Have, okay. We didn't have our own. We didn't have our own place to play. We played in <laughs> Miami Beach Convention Hall. We played in oh, Miami Beach God. Auditorium. We played in Dade County Community College. It was ridiculous. Why did you go there? You could have gone anywhere. I, because I wanted to get out of New Jersey and I wanted to go play for a coach that I loved because I was going to quit high school. I was going to quit basketball in high school because of my coach and my father and my brother you know, talked me out of doing it because uh, he was nuts. I mean, and then later I heard he was at Rutgers or someplace and threatened to jump off the faculty building. And he played on that great LIU team with Sherman White back in the old days with the scandal. Yes. And he yes. was on that team. Yes. And, uh, 
and so I'll be nice not to mention his name for his family because I don't want to go ahead and, you know, get them all mad at me and all. But he uh, he just made my – it was horrible. I mean, he screamed and hollered. He, he just did so many stupid things. I couldn't even believe, you know, what he did. And I, I didn't want to play anymore. I mean, I, I'd show you how bad it was. One, one perfect thing. So he didn't like the way we played in the varsity game and in the first game after school. And so – I had gotten, I had fallen and, you know, got one of those hip pointers and stuff. And I was still really sore doing, he made us play the first quarter of the JV game for punishment. I fell down and hit the other hip thing. I lived four blocks from school. It took me an hour and a half to walk home. I could barely move. Yeah. And, and, and that's just one thing that happened and so many other things that, it just was, it was very difficult for me. And I, I, basketball always been fun for me and doing it. And that's the whole thing is that, and unfortunately in my career, I've had some unbelievable coaches who were so instrumental in helping me to come the player I became. And I had a lot of coaches that I fortunately was able to overcome them and still succeed. No, no names, of course. I'm not going to throw out a bunch yeah, of yeah, okay. You know, no. the bottom line of it is, is that I think I always think, I've really been tempted to do a documentary because of so many guys I've talked to over the years, especially when I have my radio show and doing things, all these stories of wonderful things. You hear the stories about John Wooden and all this coach and that coach and blah, blah, blah. And then you hear the stories coming from guys who weren't necessarily the top scoring guys at all and hear what they went through and way they were treated in high school and college. There's a lot of coaches out there who had no business being coaches who have made life very difficult for a lot of athletes because of the way that they conduct themselves and they handle these people as human beings. And something should be done about that to let everybody know. Cause I think coaches get too much credit at times and they definitely get too much blame at times, but not enough of them are, are, are put before the court to have judgment on them as to whether or not they should even be allowed to coach. Rick, I think, I think that's a great idea. I've thought of it myself as a book. Because I've run into guys that had exactly the same, what you're saying, you know, the one, one, or, one or two incidents with one coach, basically they didn't want to do, they didn't want to play organized ball anymore. I have, I have big problems with my high school coach, but, but whatever, you know, guys that really were good players in college and then got to the pros and for whatever reason with this coach or that coach, I'm not going to name names either, but I think it'd make a great book. So different. So, so well, different. Yeah, but actually, I tell you the thing, we're all visual learners and stuff. It would be really great to go ahead and get him on camera and be able to have them tell their well, I, I agree. I think it's and hear And hear the emotion and hear the yeah. hurt and the scars that they still have left over from it and what they had to go through. And, and it's really kind of pathetic, seriously, what, what has happened. And, and, uh, and no, it, I, it, I, that hits close to home for me, too. Yeah, I know, but your sons and stuff. Yeah. I, I, I've got, I've got, uh, a guy, I'm not going to name him, but not only not only was he lied to by a coach, you know, come and play for me because this, I'm going to give you this and that, and then winds up getting cut. That cost that guy because he already had two years in the NBA, and you need three to start getting a pension. The guy was right. cut. He was cut before. You know, we didn't know that. He didn't know that at the time. Cost him how much money over the years? No pension. Yeah, that guy, that coach lied to him. So hey, they do he, it all the time. I mean, I sat there and had a coach lie right to my face and my wife's face. I mean, it just it, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. 
Rick, I, I know, you know, when you were in high school, um, Hubie Brown used to talk about, because he's from Jersey and you're from Jersey. Yeah, he goes to Cranford and he had a guy named Cor Cor Corbett, or Cor yeah, Frank uh, Cor Corbett, I think it was, Corbett, and who was like 19 years old, still playing in freaking high school. Do you know, I realized, Freshman. Peter, Peter, I was, I, I finished my high school season of, of basketball and hadn't turned 17 yet. Wow. But but he talks about your baseball. He talks oh, I was about a better baseball. I was baseball. a better baseball player. Yeah. So you wear twenty four because you were a Willie Mays fan, right? Right. Yeah. And but so how how good? What position did you play? I've never I was. I put, well, of course, I played center field. Owned to play center field, and I pitched. And then when I didn't pitch, I played center field. But then I realized I'm an A type personality. And baseball is slow as hell. At, you know, and so I could play a whole game and never have a ball hit to me in center field. And right. so I said, no, this is not good. I mean. And then, of course, you, you got to sit in the dugout. If the team's not getting hits, you don't sit there for, you know, half an inning for two innings before you get a chance to even bat again. Right. So I said, <laughs> no, I got to go. And as I grew and got taller, I said, no, first base. I mean, I got to go someplace where I got some action. So the the most action is pitcher, catcher, first base. And I wanted to play. And I'm batting 500. And the coach is not playing me when I'm not pitching. And I said, coach, <laughs> this, is, this is not, you know, this is not the major leagues here. I said, you know, I can play every position. I don't want to catch. I learned that at an early age, but I can play every position. I'm batting 500 better than anybody on the team. When I don't pitch, I want to play. Next game, I pitch. Bat ninth. One for two. 500. Next game, on the bench. And I said, see you later. So, and then I went, and I should thank him because now I went and I focused all my energies that whole summer and I just worked on my basketball. And I, I was out there every day, all day in the summer, hours and hours and hours. And it helped me to develop my game in basketball. And and so then I made all state in basketball, but the, the varsity coach in my junior year came up to me and asked me if I was going to play baseball. I said, well, it depends. He said, on what? I said, well, the reason I left JV is that I was batting 500 coach and when I didn't pitch, he wouldn't play me. And I asked him to play me. I said, so if I'm not pitching, am I going to play? He said, you'll be playing. Don't worry about it. And so I played. I think I batted like 469 my junior year. And um, we didn't have fences, only in right center and right field a little bit. And I was, you know, like I said, I was a skinny young kid. And I, I couldn't get around on guys' fastballs. I could still hit it. But everything was going to right and right center. And I had a, I had a bunch of home runs. And you know, I hit, you know, like I say, four something at home when they didn't have the other fields. And then I got bigger and stronger for my last year and I started pulling the ball and I only batted like 370 because I was hitting balls that would have been home runs because there's no fence out there and they were catching them, <laughs> you know? And so, and I did it. I had some yeah. no, I pitched, pitched no hitters and did stuff and all. And, but it, it just wasn't, it wasn't right. a sport that really that I gravitated to for enjoyment as far as too slow. I'm an A-type personality. Basketball, you're always doing yeah, no, I get it. going, you know. Rick, I get around. it. Let me, let me yeah. interrupt. I felt, I, I felt the same way. I went down to watch Michael Jordan in Orlando when he was playing baseball, and I watched him play in a game, and he's standing out in right field, and I think he had one catch the whole game. He got up four times. I think he was one for four, whatever. I'm saying – what a waste of talent. What the hell? He's just standing out there doing nothing. And he obviously felt the same way after the next year. That was that was the first year. And so I, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, here's the thing, though. I wish when I was in Miami, they tried to get me to play baseball. I wish I had done it. They had a really good baseball team, a good coach, Ron Frazier. And I mm -hmm. wish I had done it because looking back on it, 
I think I had a chance to be a professional athlete in two sports. And I, if I had to do it again, I would do it. I would want to do that. I would want to be a special athlete in that regard to be able to be really good. Kind of like, you know, Deion Sanders was able to do something special and, right. and, and Chuck Connors did it in baseball when he played for the Celtics and played Gene, baseball. Gene Connolly. Gene, Gene Connolly did it. Uh, I mean, there's a bunch Dave of guys. The Busher. Dave if the Busher was able to do yeah. a little bit, I mean, he never became a great baseball player, but no. I would like to have done it to have become an all-star player in, in two sports. That would have been kind of fun. I would have been, maybe I could have been the white Bo Jackson. <laughs> You know, I, I, I wonder, you know, you mentioned documentaries and you mentioned your kids and, and, and things that so bother you about that. So you've had five sons that play professional ball. Yeah. Why, why have you not done a documentary on your lineage, starting not only with you, but starting with Bruce Hale? For starting, with my, no, starting with my father, who was a semi-pro player and coach. Okay, but Bruce Hale played NBA ball. Yeah, he was one. Of, he was one of the best NBA players. That's one of the reasons right. I went there. So, so there you go. So, so you've got you know how many how many players have fathers that are you know from playing the NBA? But how about grandfathers? I I think there's only one other grandfather that ever played. I mean, what a documentary that would make, Rick. Yeah, well, the bottom, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't thought about wanting to do that. I mean, obviously, oh. I became, I became persona non grata when I was. I came out as everybody would say, well, he was rookie of the year in 1965, 66. I said, hey, hey, you know, that's nice. I'm proud of that. I said, but I was first team all pro. That's a little bit more <laughs> accomplishing a little bit more as a rookie as opposed to being rookie of the year, making first team all pro, you know, as at such a young age and doing it two years in a row, leading the league in scoring you know, top and steals, free throws, all-star MVP doing it. And then I left the league, man, were they pissed at me? I, I mean, know, but what does that have to do with a documentary about you and your kids? No, I mean, because the fact is because they all hated me. I mean, I was like, I mean, I was like, they're all dead, Rick. All those I, people are dead. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> no, they're not all dead, but the well, bottom line of it is, is that, it, you know, stuff lingers on. I was never, I was persona non grata for the NBA for a long time. I think they were really mad at me. I changed the whole thing. The owners hated me because all of a sudden the players were able to have free agency, you know, right. Kurt the Flood. Well, then look at all the stories they did about Kurt Flood. And I did what I did to change it for basketball before Kurt Flood. Two years, two years before. Yeah. You know, I mean, so yeah. no, here's the deal is that it's not, it, I, People could do whatever they want to do. The bottom line is, is I was portrayed as a villain. Okay. And the reason being is, is back in those days, athletes are supposed to be dumb jocks. And you're not supposed to have a brain. You're not supposed to have anything to say. And you just go along with the program. Like you're an inmate at the freaking prison. <laughs> and now the prisoners are running the asylum. Well, that's what Wilt said in his last book. God bless him. He said, the inmates are running the asylum and the players have gotten way, way too much power. I think, I mean, the kind of money that they make, I don't think they really appreciate it. Do you know that the lowest paid guy in the league will make more money than I made in the best year I ever had, and he never plays? Yeah. Twice no, as I'm much. Not, Twice not, as much. Not, not, not surprised at all. My, my goal covering the NBA was to make minimum. I wanted to make NBA minimum. Now I'd retire on NBA minimum. No, it's a million dollars. You make them. I mean, it's almost a million dollars in salary. Then you get the NBA property stuff. These guys are making a million dollars, and they never play. And then you get pension. Benefit. And if you're there on. for three years, you start to get the pension. Yeah. Wow. Rick, uh, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't uh, go swerve over to uh, Bill Russell passing away at 88. Um, I know everybody, you know, I don't expect you to say anything really different 
then everybody has talked about him as a player and as a as a person. You know, his his, uh, his activist work and his athletic work. But maybe maybe you have a story or a good story that stands out. I personally, you know, everyone everyone that interviewed me so far, they said, well, you know, how upsetting, how sad that he died. And I'm saying, Bill Russell has to be happy he died. He was sick for two years. You know, he was really sick. You know, he's 88 years old. I said, you want me to be sorry for somebody? I'm going to be sorry for Maravich and Kobe and and guys who died at a young age or Wilt who died 25 years ago when he was 63. And, mean, could have, and it could have been prevented because, as Barbara told me, his sister, because I got to be friends with Will afterwards, and I just really liked him as a person. I loved him. I and loved him. Uh, he just didn't go in for his checkups. If he had gone in for his checkups, I mean, he could you know, he could still be around today. You know? What was it, his teeth? No, it's his heart. He just, but if he had gone in, but he just didn't go in and do his checkups because he was too strong. Yeah, he was too much. Yeah, he just believed that he was, you know, invincible and stuff. And all if he had gone in for checkups and all, it would have been, you know, he could have been around today. So it was really very sad. But Bill, obviously, those are you know during their time, the two greatest centers playing during that time, and and great rivalry between the two of them and the friendship that they had. And um, you know, I, I just, I, I. I, I'm astonished at times when I start hearing all these younger people, these writers, and everybody else. Don't even bring up Will Chamberlain's name or bring up some of these other players to pick them ahead of Will Chamberlain. I said, first of all, first of all, you shouldn't you shouldn't be comparing decades to different decades. You know, take the best players from their time to the best right. players of their time. Correct. Don't compare the guys playing today, but the guy, hell, they only have a center on the All Star ballot for crap's sake now. So just compare them there. And if you were going to pair the greatest center during that time was Will Chamberlain. Okay. Bill Russell had the most influence and the most impact on a team's success. Amazing 11 and 13 years with the Celtics. And he was an integral part of that. And they don't win without him. But to say he was a better center than Will Chamberlain would be, would be wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, Will Chamberlain has done things that nobody will ever do. The only place that Will, I think that Bill and Will were equal was rebounding and intimidation and shot blocking. I mean, but the offense, there is no comparison. I mean, because Will could block shots and do the things that, you know, that, that Bill did, maybe not to the same degree, maybe a little edge to Bill there, but the edge in offense, there's no comparison between the two. I mean, people don't understand, Pete, 50 points a game in a freaking full NBA season, averaged more than 48 minutes a game for a season. The guy that he led the league in assists one time as a, as a center, he, I mean, he averaged one season. He averaged like something like twenty-eight rebounds a game. I, I mean, thirty. I think thirty. No, I don't know if he got to thirty. It was insane. But his career, both he and Bill, twenty-two point five rebounds a game for your career. I mean, it's astonishing what this guy was able to do right. and what a physical specimen and athlete he was. Uh, just amazing. And getting back because we were talking more about Bill. I, and getting to know Bill when we broadcast, and despite what everybody says, Bill and I wound up with a great relationship. He invited me to us when he finally made up with the Boston Celtics, and he had his jersey retirement, invited me there. I mean, I was there with Wilt and had some great conversations with him and so many other great players. But what Bill did away from basketball was far more important to him than basketball. I mean, he was there standing up for the rights, you know, for blacks and civil rights and all the other stuff. And that was more important to Bill. And that was the impressive thing about him. And I, I think one of the things I read about, I think Satch Sanders is the one that said that Bill honestly, truly believed that any team he played on should never lose. <laughs> Seriously. And he said, and that attitude kind of permeated everybody else 
And everybody else kind of believed that as well. And what he accomplished will never be accomplished again. I mean, 18 championships in 13 seasons. Seriously. That's that's nuts. That's absolutely nuts. Right. So, yeah. Amazing. amazing Here's the thing of my tribute to him. So I said, okay, if I can pick four players that I would want to play with to challenge against any other five players that anybody chooses, I'm taking Will Chamberlain as my center. I'm making Bill Russell my power forward. He never has to score a point. He just do what he did, defense, you know, all the other intimidation and stuff. Uh, I'm going to play the three. I'm going to, and, and this is probably the hardest thing for me. Well, the hardest thing actually is point guard, but at the four position, that's, that's a that's a difficult one. You no, know? you got Russell at the four. I got Russell at the four. I'm, I'm sorry, the two position, obviously, Michael, but the point guard is the one that's the diff- most difficult one. And really? it's very hard Oscar? not to. It's, not it's, Oscar? No, no, yeah, I love Oscar doing stuff. It's hard not to have Magic Johnson because, first of all, with Michael Jordan at the two, me at the three, and Wilt at the thing, do we need Oscar to score 30? Nobody led, you know, all but, the yeah, but, but at the assistant stuff. I, yeah, I'm just saying. But yeah, it's, okay. hard, it's hard okay. to say that I would take uh, between Oscar and Magic. Okay, right. that's a very difficult, very difficult one. But if we're going to play with the three-point shot, I'm taking Steph Curry. <laughs> I love him as well. I love him as well. Because the three-point shot is such a differentiator. And 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 who? why would you not want to have Steph Curry as your point guard on that team with those other guys? Because oh, even good. if Steph goes, you're not going to be able to go and post him up, not with Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell in oh, your front good. court. I that's mean, good. think yeah. about it. I, I'm in love with his game as well. Um, you know, being from New York, uh, we're all we're all still wondering what the hell happened. Why the Knicks didn't get him? They could have. They really. Well, they could have had. They could have had Rick Barry too. And they missed me. Yes, yes. I wanted to talk about that. They took Bill Bradley. Um, all right, let's let's move past Curry and, and the New York Knicks. Um, I I I, uh, I was wondering about the Olympics. You know why why you didn't make the Olympics? Why the Knicks didn't take you? There were so many things that happened to you when you were first coming up. Um, you want to speak about that? What about the Olympics? Yeah. My about biggest, the Olympics? That's the biggest disappointment in my career is not to have been an Olympian. First of all, so I was this in 64. Uh, I was one of the leading scorers in the country. I think I averaged like 32 a game that season. Um, but the problem was is that they had that team was pre-picked. Trust me on this one. And I'll tell you why. And the coach was Hank Iba. Hank Iba. And yeah. it was all about wanting to do stuff. They had a preconceived idea of who they were going to have on that team. And it was such BS. They said, we're going to pick the team based upon the performance in the Olympic trials and the games that are going to be played. Bullshit. OK, right. first of all, I wasn't even invited to the trials as a junior, as one of the top scorers and offensive players in the country. The only reason I got to go is Gary Brads from Ohio State pulled out at the last minute. Really? I got a call. They really? tracked me down. They said, Rick, they called and said, would you want to come to the Olympic trials? Brads has pulled out. There's a spot and they'd like for you to come. That's the, the only reason. St. John's. That's the only John's? reason I got to go there. Well, we played in different places, but we wound up oh. playing the last game in St. John's, and so I thought that I played really well. I tried to be the ultimate team player. I actually, I thought I played really good defense against one of the top players on the Armed Forces team, and had to guard this guy named Jerry Ship. I think was his name. Yeah. And I thought my defense was really good. I I scored. I passed. I did the stuff I needed to do. I thought I played well, and. 
in the last game against in St. John's, the cheer, the people actually, I played and then they took me out. The fans were actually cheering and trying to get me back in the game. We want Barry, man, trying to get me in the game. It, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So I'm, I'm walking and John Thompson never got the chance to be there because Mel Counts was over. They already had Mel Counts to play against the Russian seven footer. I mean, that was already predetermined. And Mel, I mean, I mean, John never got a chance and he was really PO'd about that too. And justifiably so. Two other players should have made that team that didn't make it, but they Willis? were offensive. Willis? No, no, no. Two guys should have made that team. Wally Jones played so great. Oh, yeah, he was. And good. Willie Morrell from Kansas State. Both of those guys, I mean, both of those guys played exceptional, I thought. But they didn't want the offensive guys for some reason, whatever it was. Bill Bradley, as great a player as he was in college and everything, did not play well in the trials. And based upon the trials, should not have made the Olympic team. Yeah. Now, if that's what the case. Now, if you want to just pick the team based upon what you've done, hey, yeah, sure. Bill Bradley, you know, hell of a player. And, you know, it's not going to be bad to have him on your team. I walked off the court and Joe Lapchick comes up to me. He says, young man, I'm Joe Lapchick. I just want to tell you that you're not going to make the Olympic team, but you're going to be a great pro basketball player. And I'm going, what? I thought that they were saying, he knew already that I wasn't going to be on that team. Right. Right. You know, I mean, so that just, that just soured to be so much to what they did there. It was so unfair to Willie Morrell, to Wally Jones, to me, to John Thompson, to a bunch of players, because they were taking players from the various different groups that played the AAU, the armed services, blah, yeah. blah, 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 which I was think, BS. I, I there were so Schiff, many guys, so many, Pete, there were so many guys in that team that I was so much better than as a player. Yeah, no, I, made the Olympic the team. I looked at the roster. I think Ship led the team in scoring with 12 points a game or something. But I talked to Joe Caldwell about that. He went, he made the team. And so did Walt Hazard. And they, they told me, well, Joe told me, he said, when they were there for that, going into the last game, he said, Iba wouldn't let them run. And those two guys, that's all they did was, you know, they wanted to run. He said, they, they decided between themselves, they were going to run no matter what. And they ran the team off. The, I think it was the Russians ran them off the court. And uh, <laughs> so everybody talks about you not making it, that you should have made it. And you're right about Wally. My brother, George, wrote a, a story for Newsday about Wally should should have made the team. Yeah, he played so, terrific. He right. played terrific. And as I said, so did I remember Willie Morrell plays super. And John Thompson never got a chance to really get a chance to play at all. It was uh, it was very sad. It was uh, it was very sad that uh, they did that because Mel Counts was there and the coach of our team was Slat Skill, who was his college coach. <laughs> so so that was your biggest disappointment. Yeah. Do you have any others that, that stand out? Personally? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I got the championship ring, which is all that matters. I mean, for me not to have been MVP of the championship year that we had and everything was ridiculous because it's the only year that they – my luck is just crazy. i just tell you how it works. So, first of all, usually when you do it, you get the MVP. You know, Chevrolet was the sponsor. You get a Chevy Corvette and everything. They switched sponsors, and they put AMC, and I got an AMC Pacer. Okay? So, that just shows you how things were kind of going. <laughs> and then, no, no, seriously. I mean, that's I it. It. And, then, yeah, I and then some, some, some moronic person in the media decides, well, let's let the players decide who's the MVP. What a stupid thing to do. Players are going to have personal feelings about other players. Right. They're not going to be, they're going to be biased. Okay. And so <laughs> not only did I not win, I didn't even come in second. <laughs> 
Who won it? Bob McAdoo, I think. Hmm. And I'm not taking Bob as a great, great player, you know, but my God, I mean, I had such a freaking unbelievable season playing. Yeah. And then, yeah. and what, but the justification for me, and as I say, I got the ring that mattered, not the freaking MVP of the league right. or a trophy. I got the championship ring, and that's what I was playing for. I didn't play for individual honors, but I felt it was a disservice to me. And But what made me feel good about it is that the writers chose the all-pro team. I was the only unanimous choice. So do you think if they were voting for MVP, I might have won? Geez, you mean the writers liked you? You know, but McAdoo, McAdoo winning the MVP, that was something that he could talk about for 25 years, that he was the only MVP of the league not to make the top 50. Now, he made the top 75. Yeah, well, he should, He was a hell of a player, and he should Yeah, no, I know. I got the, I've got, he couldn't have said that if you won it. <laughs> yeah, but, my, you know, as I say, I mean, but that's those are probably the two things personally at all, but I say it's – it is what it is, and you, you know, you just you move on. And we got the championship, and that's what really mattered. And right, but, well, let me uh, turn it around. Let me turn it around. What What are you most proud of in your life? In your life, I'm proud. I'm proud that all of my children have are good people and have not done anything to screw up their life you know, by doing foolish things. So I'm really proud of all of my children for uh, what they've accomplished in their life. And there's nothing more gratifying than if you have children to see your children succeed in whatever it is that they're doing. And it was especially rewarding for me because all five of my boys wind up getting a division one college scholarship, playing professional basketball, Brent on two NBA championships team, scooter on the NCAA championship team. I mean, just, just awesome in that regard. And, uh, <clears throat> and the, probably the biggest disappointment, I think both my son scooter and Canyon deserve to be NBA players. Uh, and, and you know me, if my boys weren't that good, I'd say, Hey, they're not that good. They can't play. They don't deserve it. Scooter was the last cut by the Boston Celtics. And Bird and McHale both said to me, said, Rick, your son should have made our team. He was better than our number one pick. They had 13 no-cut contracts back in those days and only 12-man rosters, so there's nowhere to go. He wound up playing professionally until he was 40 years old all over the world. Uh, he deserved to be in the NBA. And my son, Canyon, I think, deserved to have a shot to do it. Never really got it. Uh, who's a hell of a player. Um, I mean, it's just astonishing to me that he hasn't gotten a chance to to be given a, a chance to play, especially when I see guys making five, six, seven, eight million dollars a year who have major, major flaws in their game, don't understand how to play the game the right way. And you got a kid like mine who can shoot 40 percent from threes, 85 to 90 from the free throw line, can bring it up the floor, see the floor, pass it, you know, athletic. I mean, and unselfish, knows the game and he's not getting a chance to play. I hate seeing talent wasted. I really, truly do. And his talent has really been wasted. In fact, my son Brent's talent, I think, was wasted. You know, Brent had a long career, you know, really did a great job. But had he played for a team where he was turned loose and letting to play, I tell everybody, you want to see what Brent could have been like? Watch the first half of the sophomore rookie game that he played in when he won the slam dunk contest. And you'll have an idea of what he was capable of doing. He could make passes and do things that, I mean, he, 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 he could do some stuff and he was not allowed to do that. And again, we get back to the situation of, you know, coaches using players efficiently and effectively and recognizing what they can and can't do. You've seen it, Pete. I yeah. mean, my great, the story I tell all the time, and I've gotten to know him really well. He's a great guy, Dale Ellis. Dale Ellis' talent was so wasted playing in Dallas because he had a coach who didn't let him play the way he could play. You think that he went over and became the leading three-point shooter in the NBA when he went to Seattle when he left there because he all of a sudden learned how to play? 
No, it's because he wasn't allowed to play and do what he was capable of doing because he had a By coach who? that had a system. Who was his coach in Dallas? Dick Mata. Okay. You know, yeah. that's not, it's not the kind of game he wants to play. Right. I mean, coaches, kind of coaches like system coaches are not my favorite people in the right. world. Right. You know, right. you know, because you have to, I think as a coach, you have to put in a system that works for the players and talent you have, not for what you would want it to be. Stand, stands to reason. So two, two things. I got to give you a quick Brent story. We're in San Antonio during the finals. I can't even tell you the year. And he takes me out to eat, and we're with a couple other guys on the team. And he gets a phone call, and he picks it up, and we're sitting there, and I'm listening to what he's saying. And he said, yes, yes, I know I should have shot more. Yes, yes, I know I should have done this. I should have been more more aggressive. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. He hangs up. I said, that was Rick? He goes, no, that was my grandmother. <laughs> And she knew the game. No, Doris Hale. That was that was my that was my father my father in law's uh, wife, Doris, who knew the game really well, uh, and she really did have a great feel for the game. She yeah. Was, no, I was like, oh my god, there was a column waiting right there, and I, I blew it. But yeah. I finally get to tell a story, and you laugh, so I know it was a good story. Oh no, no, that's a good story because I was hoping because the thing is, I I know it wasn't going to be me because he would never want to listen to me, so I didn't try to call him. I realized he never the last person he wanted to hear from me. <laughs> Well, you're his father. What the hell? Yeah, I know. But that's the whole thing. When you're a father, what the hell is the fa father never knows anything? Right, right. Why Why have you never been a coach and have you wanted to be a coach, either in college or pro? Well, I, I tried. I mean, the bottom line is is that is that uh, I think they're mostly probably because of my reputation. Oh, Ricky's impossible to get away with and that thing. I, you know, my reputation that the, your, your media friends had bestowed upon me. Wait, they voted um, for you for the top for the all all pro team. Those guys. Yeah, but that was only my second year. That was later on. <laughs> that was so, before you jumped leagues. No, no, that was before I really started talking and being the kind of guy that you know that you're not going. Here's the deal, because no general manager was going to give me a chance to do that because they know they're not going to be able to control me and tell me how I'm supposed to coach, who I should be playing. If you're going to hire me, let them you know hire me. Let me do my job. I think the league makes such a big mistake giving out these long term contracts and they waste so much of the owners' money. I was willing. First of all, I didn't want to necessarily do it. I mean, I got, and I got to do it in the minor leagues. I said, "Well, I'll see what it's like." Turned out that I actually really liked the teaching part of it. Okay, and the game stuff was good too. And I, you know, and I enjoyed that. But I really enjoyed the teaching part of it. And the problem is, is that as again, coaches get too much credit and too much blame. I think is that. I was kind of, you know, being told what I should and shouldn't do. I mean, you can't, if you hire me, let me do it. Let the coach have something to say with the players. What the hell is the deal? You're hiring me as a coach and I have to coach the talent that's given to me by the general manager. Well, shit, I might not want that talent. I might have other talent out there that I think would be better. And so if you're going to fire me because I'm not doing well, you should fire the general manager first. I mean, am I getting as much out of this team as I can based upon the talent that they have that I've been given? And that's what determination should be, not wins and losses. Are they getting better? What's a realistic number of wins that this team should have based upon their talent level? Okay, I'm not God. I can't take a guy who doesn't know how to play and has no feel for the game and teach him how to have a feel for the game and become a better player. I can teach him some things to get better. I can teach him to shoot better or some other things. But it's pathetic that they put the general managers have too damn much control. They And they don't get the blame that they should get. Right. right. Now, they should, a lot of times they get the credit, gave them planning. Hey. 
it's worked well for San Francisco. You know, Bob has done a terrific job getting some really talented people. And Steve has been smart enough to utilize their talent in an efficient way and get them to play basketball the way it should be played, which is fun to watch. And that's why the Warriors have had the success that they've had over this last decade or so, because they've got two guys working together, you know, same thing that happened in San Antonio, you know, Pop and, and uh, RC did a great job working together. And so I think that's the way it should be. And this way, if a, if a coach has say in who his players are and give them a, a lot of say, then you have every right in the world to fire him if the team isn't doing well right. because it's the right. people he wanted. You know, but if you give him chicken, you know what, and you say make chicken out of this, that's not easy to do. Right. I, I You know, you mentioned RC and, and uh, Pop. I remember when they, when they drafted Parker, uh, RC had told me at the time that um, you know, they drafted him late in the first round, and uh, Pop did not want him. And and RC kept telling him, go back and take another look, take another look. And they finally they drafted him, what twenty eight or something like that. And look and look what happened. So those guys they li- they listen to each other, they work together. So so you're right. What just as long as we're on the Warriors for a second, split second. I know I see what you you love Curry. You got to love Thompson. I mean I. I, I think he's a. To me, I voted for him top seventy-five. I think he's a tremendous player. What What do you think about Green and his antics during a game? Well, I think he's gotten better as he's gotten a little bit older. You get more mature. Um, uh, you know, he's hurt his team on a number of occasions with his response to stuff. It cost him a championship. Right. You know, right. I mean, when he got when and, and although it cost him a championship, although the total blame should be on the officials for the officials to not have called. A flagrant, a, a, a flagrant foul on LeBron James for throwing Green down to the court and stepping over him. Draymond would not have responded the way he had done, and he wouldn't have gotten the suspension. And I still think it's ludicrous that they suspended him in a freaking playoff game over that incident. Right. Total bullshit. They should be ashamed of themselves. But the Warriors also shot themselves in the foot. I think they win without question if he doesn't get suspended, but they still should have won because in game six at home, a game seven at home, you're at home. You got a game close late in the game. Why in the world are you taking nothing but three point shots? That's why I tell you that it's a double edged sword. It can, you can kill a team with it or you can kill yourself. The Warriors lost because they did nothing in the last four minutes and 20 seconds, other than the, the incredible block that LeBron had against Iguodala. That was the only inside shot the Warriors took. They missed all kinds of shots, but all from the perimeter. I don't understand why they didn't go to the basket. I mean, you're at home. Put a few points on the board. Get ahead. It's not hard for Kyrie Irving to take a three-point shot late in the game in a tie game, right? What the hell yeah. is yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a tie game. Yeah. Okay? But if you're down. Right. And you take that three-point shot, which was the only basket made in the last four minutes and 40 seconds, I think it was, and one of two free throws by LeBron James. That was the only scoring. I tell people, maybe the worst four minutes and 40 seconds of a Game 7 in NBA Finals history, offensively. And so, hey, if I'm down, and he, if you're down two or three three points, and you take that three-pointer and you miss it, basically the game is over. It's easy to take that shot when you're tied. you got really nothing to lose. Rick, your, your recall is amazing, I must say. Well, I was writing. I was writing for the examiner during that time. and writing well, I was writing, it. too, and I don't remember any of that. Yeah, but I wrote I, I wrote after the first game. I said, there is no way in the world that Cleveland Cavaliers will beat the Golden State Warriors in this series. It's an impossibility the way that they play basketball. <laughs> you know how – do you, 
Pete, this is, it was almost 60 possessions. Cleveland, zero or one pass. Really? What? Yep. <laughs> what? Yep. <laughs> I mean, right. They did not play. The Warriors came down. They were three, four, five, six passes. Boom, boom, boom. I said, they will never beat the Golden State Warriors playing that kind of basketball. And it was a lot of times LeBron would bring it up to court. And so he would get it. He couldn't do something, throw it off. That guy that got it would shoot it. Or he could down do something, take a shot with no pass. Right. I'm serious. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So, Rick, Rick, I, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but you know, you're you're an original, basically three point shooter, ABA. You know, you, you, you I, I, I remember, you know, covering you with the Nets, and you were one of the one of the few guys, you know, Louis Dampier, another guy that would take six, seven a game. No, I didn't. I didn't, Pete. Ever? No. Ever? No. Ever? No. You need no. You, All right, four or later, five. Later four on, five. no. I was not. I was. I never shot from that unless the clock's down or something. I was not a great shooter here's the difference i was a great scorer and there's a huge difference between the two when i hear some of these former nba guys doing color analyst work i almost want to puke oh he's a lockdown defender i said well maybe you got locked down in your career but nobody ever locked me down because if you're a scorer nobody's locking you down you can't lock down a scorer you can lock down a shooter and when they make that statement it's just like oh my god what the hell are you talking about right okay that's why i could i could score and i could beat you in a multitude of ways and I got better. I mean, I got to be, you know, sometime I shot up in the in the mid-30s or something. If I were playing today, that's the only two parts of the game I would have to improve on. Number one, first original point forward, they said, okay? Everybody raved about it because I was my size at six, seven and a half, six, eight with shoes on. I was fast and quick, which most players aren't at my size, especially. And I could dribble righty, lefty crossover. And everybody was saying, oh, God, he can handle the ball and stuff. I mean, my ball handling skills were, you know, bare minimum. If I were playing today, I would have to be a better ball handler, which is easy to do. You just get in the gym and you work on all that stuff. And a lot of times players do too much with the basketball, as you would probably attest to, too damn much. Because you can't pass the ball if you're dribbling it, okay? Especially if you're a wing player. Point guard has to do that. But wing players, they get and start dribbling, and I go right. nuts when I watch this. Right, right, right. So that's the one area of the game there and doing it. And the other one, be I would not be happy playing in today's game if I wasn't a 40% three-point shooter at least. Okay, so so you, you say say I'm wrong about you shooting that many threes. I remember you games where you, you made a lot of threes. I remember against the Squires in a playoff game, you you were lighting them up. But but anyway, in the ABA, which is known for the the the, the three point shot, though it came from the ABL, um, guys did not shoot the three that often. It, only recently in NBA time did the three become such a you know a, a nuclear weapon. But in those days, like I give you, for instance, Rick, this is a, 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 a bit of trivia that nobody gets. Game six, 1976, Denver and Nets, right? Game six was the final game, last game in ABA history. How many threes do you think were taken in that game? Maybe 12. Okay. Four. Four, four threes. The same guy shot all of them and made two of them, and that was Brian Taylor. I mean, it's an amazing stat. It's an amazing stat. Yeah. So that's the ABA, you know, so different than the NBA, you know. But um, the, what do you think about the game today with so many threes? Well, too much of anything is not good, uh, but it is the way the game is played. 
And I always am astonished when I look at some teams and I look at their rosters, especially when I see my son not getting a chance to play on some of these teams, have guys on their rosters making millions of dollars who can't shoot 33 or better percentage or even in the 30s or shooting in the 20s. Why would you have a guy on your team that's a wing player who can't shoot 30-something and hopefully in the mid-30s or even better? Yeah, it should be a requirement. You shouldn't be allowed to sign a guy who can't shoot the ball from that, you know, with that kind of accuracy. Or you better be playing defense like Dream. Well, forget de- I mean, he's not gonna, his defense isn't going to be that great. I mean, you know, unless he's blocking, you know, eight shots a game and getting 15 rebounds a game. I mean, if he's a wing player and he's one of your guys who's playing the two or the three and he's that bad a shooter, what the hell is he on your team for? Okay. I, I personally, I, I can't stand watching the game anymore. This well, just no, I mean, it's too, it gets to too be many. too much. I mean, they come down. This, you know, I mean, that's why I loved what the Warriors have done. And the only time that they got in trouble sometimes, especially when they had KD, is a lot of times they would rely on him a little bit too much. But their game was pass, move, cut, three, four, five passes. You know, take the opportunities, get the easy shots when they're there. And then they have the threat of the guys who can make the three-point shot at a very high percentage. And that just makes you unguardable. I mean, the Warriors, when KD were there, were virtually an unguardable team. Right. Right. Well, I'm, I, I once, uh, I once told uh, the uh, one of the guys. I think Rick Welch was running the team at the time, and they were thinking about uh, getting Barnett out of there. You know, he's been there for how many years? They're going to change announcers, and and I saw saw Welch, who I knew when he was the PR guy for the Sonics, for crying out loud. And I said, Rick, if you go through with that, I said, I, I would love to have a chance to be, to be, uh, you know, take his place. And he said, for real? I said, yeah, I would, I would move out there. He said, come on, really? I said, no, oh, I love the Warriors. I said, I love their players. I said, I would love to do their games. They wound up bringing Bar- Barnett back again. He said, I hope he doesn't see this. <laughs> but anyway, so, so your ABA days, you know, we've got we've to go right into the pension. The fact that uh, finally after, you know, how many years since 76 they finally decided the nba they didn't have to do anything as we know but, but i have to correct you it's not a pension no you're right it's not a pension they gave they gave them they gave them charity basically they were, that's exactly right and i'm so proud of the players association and the nba for doing what they did because they had no responsibility or obligation Correct. whatsoever to do anything for those guys and thanks to scott tarter from the Dropping Dines Foundation out of Indianapolis, who has been such a champion for that. This guy should get some kind of an award for what he's done because right. this is going to help so many guys, and there's not that many there. It's not going to go on forever. Uh, but what a magnanimous, incredible gesture on the part of the NBA and the Players Association. My hat goes off to them. I can't even adequately express my appreciation for them having done what they did for those players. Okay, well, well, well said. 100, 114 players are going to get a pension. No, uh, they're going to get some payments. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My my fault. That's they, okay. They're going to get they're going to get payments. Um, and here's with- even a great thing: the guys that died within the last year, and there were a number of them, they're going to get a whole year of payments to those players who had already just recently passed away, to the wives. I did, not, I did not know that. Yep. Uh, and I think what a lot of people don't know is that guys like you who played in the ABA or, you know, or, or guys that wound up playing, playing in the NBA for many years and get an NBA pension, like Artis Gilmore, um, 
he will not he will not get payments from from the ABA because he's getting an NBA pension. So I think there are like maybe 25 of those guys that that will not. And and I'm sure they signed but off. But that's because it's not a pension. Right. No, so they don't deserve it. I mean they do deserve it, but they don't No, they don't deserve it. Well, they don't they don't they don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it because right. it wasn't part of the NBA. I mean, the NBA didn't have to spend one penny for these guys. Hey, it's one of those things that they're doing a wonderful thing, and the guys that didn't get anything at all are the ones that they decided to take care of. And I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. And I think it's wonderful what they're doing. Right, right. I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, I'd be one of those guys that would get it if they said they do it. But why, you know, I got a fully, fully maxed out pension from the NBA because I played enough years to do that. You know, some of the guys that didn't maybe get a full year and played over there, but they shouldn't feel that they should be entitled to that. I mean, right. seriously. right. So I slouch corrected with my terminology. My my last my last thing I'm going to I'm going to uh, basically surprise you with this is that you and I you and I have talked about Gus Williams. Uh, Gus Gus Williams was your teammate with the Warriors, a, a great player, maybe even maybe even a, a Hall of Fame uh, player. Um, and then he had a stroke, I believe, in 2021 in September, I think, or April. I'm not sure the month. So he had a stroke and he wound up in Duke, Duke Medical Center. And I've seen you and I have talked about this, but I'm going to give you more. And, and so he spent he spent a long time there. He, he couldn't speak. He was basically, you know, paralyzed, basically. And then he caught COVID. And then he almost died. And so recently I found out that he's in a he's in a rehab place in Maryland. I'm not going to say what city he's in a rehab place. His brother, David, is 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 in charge of, of him. And there's been there's been a lot of progress. You'll be glad to know that he's now able able to sit up and, and talk a little bit. And uh, the only problem right now, problem, the only flaw to that right now is one of one of his guys from Mount Vernon went to see him last week. And Gus Gus couldn't even talk because once he saw this guy, he started crying. And so I just want to let you know, and I'll let everybody know that Gus Gus is on the on the mend. And uh, I know I know you know you could talk about him as your teammate. I, I think you told me that you had spoken to him at some point about some something between you two. You want you want to get into that? Well, no, yeah, it was just one of the things. That, I mean, you know me. I, I'm as I told you early on in this conversation that I was going to be hard on my teammates at times. And but they had to understand that what happened on the court once the game was over, it's over. It's nothing personal to take off the court. And we had played in New York, and uh, Al called a timeout. He said, "Whatever you do, don't foul." And it was a really close game. And we go, the ball goes inbounds, and and Gus fouls Earl Monroe. And so I go up to him. I said, "How can you be so blankety blank stupid?" Okay, and that and so and that was it. It was over. Right, it was gone. I had no idea how upset Gus was over that, I guess, because I went and did that to him and he had family that was there watching it all. I, I didn't know that. I mean, yeah. me, you know, it was a moment in the game. I said, it's over. Forget it. Um, I found out years later that that was, you know, that you know, about it. And so I was broadcasting. I was doing the Seattle supersonic games. He's up there. So I go up to him and said, 
Gus, I, I just want to, you know, I want to apologize to you. He says, what are you talking about? I said, from back in New York, when I went over the whole thing. I said, yes, I, had, I said, if somebody had told me afterwards, I would have come up to you right afterwards and apologize. It was nothing personal. It's just me being my crazy self, wanting to win and do stuff. And I said, so I apologize. I said, you know, I had no idea that it, you know, that it upset you and hurt you that much. So please forgive me for that. And we actually became good friends. We played a lot of charity golf events together. I would see him when I go down to Myrtle Beach to play in the Monday after the Masters there, the Hootie and the Blowfish do. Yeah. And we, yeah, we got to see each other quite a bit. I mean, I can pull up my phone right now and show you a picture of Gus and I together. And yeah. then, then he disappeared. And, you know, and I had no idea. I kept trying to call him. I'm trying to reach out, send in emails, send in text messages, call and leave messages and never heard a word. So I had no idea until, you know, you told me what had happened and I didn't know that. So it's great to hear uh, yes. what you're telling me. Yes, I, I told I told the people that they're close. I said, look, if there's if there comes a time when. I can go visit him. I said, I will absolutely, you know, take the train down, whatever, drive down to see him. I loved, I loved him. I loved Gus Williams. He was a, a great guy, a great player. And uh, I'm glad you guys mended it. And I want to end, I, I, it's an ending on an upbeat note. Um, and uh, Rick, I, I really, I really want to thank you for doing this. You know, you, you, you've told me a lot of stuff I did not know, which I don't like, but I'm glad I know it now. And uh, thank you for, for being on this uh, Hoop Du Jour podcast. Yeah. Well, happy to do it. So how are you ending on a happy note? That would be a good thing. Let's end well, that, Gus, that Gus is rehabbing. Well, that is a happy note. That's, that's yeah. happy for that. That, that I, I don't know. I didn't know he had died or what the hell had happened to yeah, him. Yeah, nobody, nobody did. It's been, it's been, look, I'm talking about it on camera for the first time in a long, long time because I've stayed on it. I've tried to find them. I've tried to find out what's going on. And finally, I was down at Rucker Park a few weeks ago, and a guy came over to me from Mount Vernon, and he told me the whole story. So, I'm, well, I'm, send me the information that you have, and, and uh, yeah, that, that'd be great. I would love to love to see him keep getting better, and I'd love to have an opportunity. To, as much as it would break my heart to see him like that, uh, I mean, I, I, but I fortunately, fortunately, I've had I've had a lot of experience in doing that with former teammates and all. Well, I want stuff. you to stay away from him, actually, you know, because that. Yeah, I know. Good things, good things don't happen when you go I'm, visit. I'm serious. People. I mean, God forbid. I mean, geez. God, that would be the worst thing ever. I mean, I would think I'm definitely, you know, cursed or something like that if I go see him and something happens to him right away. Yeah, but anyway, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We had a lot of a lot of fun over the years with the things we did. Congratulations to you on, on your illustrious career and the awards and the recognition that you Thanks. received for that. And it's always great to talk basketball with somebody who loves the game as much as I do. Thank, thank, thanks a lot, and good luck with your son getting into the NBA. And yeah. and and uh, I hope to see that uh, pod, the uh, documentary on you and your sons. I really do. Yeah, well, I'm I don't think that. On that. Hey, it only it's it's been what? So it's only been thirty. <laughs> uh, no, was I was forty, uh, forty-five, forty-seven. It's only been forty-seven years uh, since the Warriors championship that's never been done. So, what do you think the chances are of everything? everything yeah. It's up to you, Rick. If you want to do it, if you want to do it, I'm sure we can make it happen. Your documentary, but Rick, they're doing. They, um, HBO is doing a, a documentary on Bill Russell. Um, another, I think it's uh, whatever. Somebody else is doing one on Wilt because I, I know I'm, I'm being interviewed soon. They, they well, I'm I'm being interviewed. I'm being. They want me to do one for that for Wilt as well, and I think I'm going to do that actually next week. 
Okay. So, so, uh, and then, and then Netflix is doing one on koozie. So, I mean, everything is taking a long time. Oh, and also they're doing, they're doing a movie on the Lakers plane that had to crash land in the, in Iowa cornfield in the snow. They're finally doing a movie on that. Elgin Baylor was on that plane. So everything, if we live long enough, I guess everything is going to happen anyway. Yeah, I, well, I really do. Would love to see well, you're talking. You're talking about things that were done. So I don't know if I'm you're talking about stuff where all the people that you mentioned there, they're all dead. So maybe we have to die first. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right, Rick. <laughs> Take care. See you. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope I hope everybody watching this learned as much as I did. Learned more than I did. Uh, you know, listen to Rick Barry talk basketball is. Uh, uh I'd, I'd, I'd rather talk pickleball, pickleball and fly. <laughs> You're not going to get me to talk pickleball. Sorry. Right. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Hoop Du Jour with me, Peter Vesey, presented by the National Basketball Retired Players Association. You can listen to all Hoop Du Jour interviews by searching Legends Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. 